Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Well, Bianca, Miss Mariah Carey has announced the official start to the holiday season, but it feels to me like she's forgotten something. You know what, Gianna? I agree. Mariah, here's the thing. We are just as excited as you are to listen to All I Want for Christmas is You. Great song. However, we should listen to it as soon as Santa Claus crosses the finish line at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and not one moment more. (laughs) Today, we're talking about the visual history of parades and what has led us to ring in the holiday season by watching a bunch of giant balloons walk down the New York City streets. Plus the dog show. You know, so we've got Santa, and then after that, you have the dog show. And you've got a great mix to kick off your giant cookie-eating streak. Let's talk turkey. Gianna. Hi. Hi. Okay, I'm really excited for this chitty chatty segment because uh, it's time for you to make an announcement. I suppose it is time to make the announcement. Um, So I told you guys that I was going to Arkansas. You know, I was going to go bop around have a little murderino time in the town of Hot Springs. At the Gangster Museum. At the Gangster Museum. Um, yeah, I did not go to the Gangster Museum whatsoever. Well, you were busy. I was very busy. Um, so I got engaged. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Yes, so it is official. She's got the ring. She had the moment. And it was really cute. <laughs> It's cute for me anyways. I love that journey for you. Yeah. I, I love a cute proposal moment. Yeah. I will say it was just so funny whenever you were talking about this trip to Arkansas because obviously I've known about what has been really going to happen in Arkansas. You're like, like, this bitch isn't going to no gangster museum. Like. <laughs> yeah. So like every time you had to talk about Arkansas, I was like trying to pretend like, when are, when are you going? Oh, what are you doing in Arkansas again? Or, you know, on the podcast, you were like, yeah, we're going to Arkansas. I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. Like trying to act like I didn't care about you going to Arkansas. <laughs> but I was so excited. And I will say, Phoebin put together this adorable video of like all of our friends and family members and everyone gave like a little congratulations and then he put it all together and I got to watch it I was just like bawling my eyes out whenever I watch this little video it was so sweet yeah the video was really cute so we went to this place in Arkansas called the Gardner Gardens and it's owned by the university and it's also where the Anthony Chapel is which is one of three chapels with really beautiful kind of like natural uh exposed windows kind of architecture um and so that's kind of around where he proposed and also where we went to go watch the video and there's this like cute little like older couple that uh took our photo for us but this like sweet uh couple was like oh wait like can we take a picture of you like for us like this will be such a you know cute memory for us and you know they were telling us about you know, very short conversation, but how they've been married for like a really long time. So it was just like cute. I was like, people are nice, you know? And uh, yeah, that chapel is honestly really gorgeous. I've been wanting to see it uh, for a while. So if you're ever interested in that area, definitely like we were recommended to go during the fall. And I must say like the aesthetic, I was here for it. So, you know, he did a good job. There was, there's a lot of thought and uh, yeah. So now I get the honor of um, 
adding another thing to my plate and <laughs> getting ready for all the wedding things. But I feel as though we need to put our attention into the next APT wedding, which is, of course, fashion expert Juliana Poros. I love a good APT wedding. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for Juliana Poros, and I'm so excited that over you know the holidays, you and I can start talking about planning. Yes, and I don't think I... With, like, Thanksgiving, and of course I'm going to see you over Christmas, like, my brain is definitely, like, not on, like, wedding stuff right now, like, at all. Uh, And there's still a lot of people I just haven't been able to, like, see to even, like, have drinks or, like, celebrate, you know? It is just still kind of, like, a weird time. So, yeah, my brain definitely isn't ready for it yet. I don't think until I see you, it'll be like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so ready. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just I'm already love... getting, like, random people asking me. Like, I, I was talking about um, you and Theban to just, like, someone I met. And I was like, oh, my sister just got engaged. Oh, it was, like, a Wally event. And mm. this girl is from Malaysia. And I was saying how my, you know, future brother-in-law is from Malaysia. And, um, oh, that's fun. Like, you met some relations. Like, yeah. And I was like, or they were like, oh, does she have a date yet? And I was like, <laughs> literally the fuck I do. Uh-uh. But like, I just, I love that question. Like, do they have a date yet? I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. No, I have, I have no clue. That's a great question. Follow up with her in a hot minute. <laughs> um, I'll let her know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel as though, too, you know, Bianca and I really just love to do the holiday season some good justice um which is why i'm not ready for christmas yet we are like a thanksgiving kind of family i love like yellow and brown food for the win that's all i want to <laughs> eat and uh we just had deepavali and diwali so theban and i did things for that this weekend and then we have thanksgiving this month and then we will have christmas and oh my gosh can i just tell you last night there's a new netflix movie and it's about this girl who gets catfish it's called love like love i saw the trailer or... for that it popped up on my netflix and i was like what the hell is this fucking christmas i was thing? like what the actual fuck and so it looks really good and like i want to watch it because i love Same. watching like the cringy like vanessa hutchins oh, netflix yes. movies like i eat that shit up i'm not ready for it and no. even was like oh like this looks you know, really good, like some catfishing Asians. <laughs> and uh, I was like, no, I really want to watch it. I'm just not ready for it. And he was like, but Netflix told us to watch it. Like, if it's not time, then why would it be here? And oh my God, we got into this whole thing. And I I'm firmly stand that I am, I'm not ready to watch it. And I, I will start watching those movies maybe on Thanksgiving. Like this is going to totally. be a, a chill Thanksgiving. And that will be the earliest I will watch it. Well, I, you know, speaking of (laughs) brown and yellow (laughs) on Thanksgiving, this year I'm spending Thanksgiving with the fam up here in Delaware, Mm. and a staple in the Martucci Fink household is um, pigs in a blanket, like cheesy pigs in a blanket. And it's because of you. Like, I just think they're so, I just love them. It's because I used to be a really picky eater when I was a kid. But now on Thanksgiving, I still really want things in a blanket. And I feel like I'm going to have to disgrace the Poro table with <laughs> some things in a blanket. We were just talking about uh, before we, we hopped on to record that there's truly no hope for us because the bouginess is like ingrained in our DNA and how Bianca 
uh, wanted to go to Vermont to get a Christmas tree because, of course, <laughs> she needs a fucking Vermonty kind of tree. And uh, one of our aunts just picked out her Christmas tree. Like, she goes, before Thanksgiving, like, it's very competitive. Like, you need to get that good tree. You got to um, it. I yeah. truly think that Pigs in a Blanket is probably where we humble ourselves. <laughs> I think they're going to be horrified. <laughs> There's all this delicious fruit, and I just want some brown pigs in a blanket. I know. Is this your first or second Thanksgiving? It's your second. Well, this is going to be my first Thanksgiving at the Pora House, because last year, we obviously wanted to do Thanksgiving, but it just got canceled because of COVID. The risk was just too much for, for everyone to be in the same place, so I hosted a little mini Thanksgiving with Joel Poro, fashion expert, and Andrew last year at my apartment, so we just had a little... You know, thing. party of three for Thanksgiving last year, but right. so I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. I really love Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, speaking of, should we move along here and get into some art news? All right. So for today, I have a little celebrité art news. You may know him as the real villain who stopped Anne Hathaway, a.k.a. Andrea, a.k.a. Andy Sachs, from taking the fashion world by storm one cerulean sweater at a time. But turns out Jarlsberg grilled cheese sandwiches aren't the only thing this villain chef can flip. (laughs) Actor Adrian Grenier is working with 21C Museum Hotel in Nashville to flip one of their contemporary suites into an immersive experience. Get this about narcissism, the digital age, and also the paparazzi. So Grenier is one of three artists invited to participate, and the deal came about with a friendship of the Hotel Cone founder, Steve Wilson, which I've been familiar with him as a collector, having worked for 21C for a bit. To quote Grenier, he says, I was telling him about a project I'd done a while back called Teenage Paparazzo and the art I created and how I'd started to accumulate so much I needed to open up my own hotel. This collection, which was basically designed to get people off their digital media devices and activate into three-dimensional spaces, having conversations in the real time and with real people. So then Wilson responded, don't do that. Why don't you just curate one of the rooms at our new hotel in Nashville? And he did just that. So his uh, documentary, Teenage Paparazzo, is from 2010, and it's about an encounter with a 14-year-old paparazzo, Austin Vizdek. So basically, this project is about how Grenier decided to turn the cameras onto Vizdek in an effort to gain insight into what motivates people to stalk, and particularly stalk the famous. So all these pieces in this hotel room return to the theme of self-reflection, how we are viewed and how we interact with the media. Other artists and works of art are also featured in the space. There is an appropriation of, I believe, a Waterhouse painting in there about, you know, narcissism and the God associated with that. Grenier feels today that the focus on social media causes some to, quote, retreat into the safety of the channels that confirm our own bias and reflect our ego and identity. It's a new time, he says, and it's interesting to watch who's considered also famous. Now that we all have access, what do we do with our own power? 
Are we going to use it for something positive and uplifting and healthy for our society? Or are we going to seek the same narcissism and attention and ego that classic celebrities have? I wanted to share this topic for Art News One just because I think, you know, 21C is an interesting thing to keep your eye on. Um, I work at a gallery that has an immersive art experience on display and I think Bianca and I are getting increasingly closer and closer to having an episode about immersive art and spaces like Meow Wolf and, and how we feel about that type of art. Um, and we see immersive art taking in spaces like hotel rooms. You know, 21C is something that is kind of taking this to the forefront, but also there are a lot of Airbnbs that are doing this. It's really interesting. Um, a classic example I use to like look for immersive art in private spaces um, is Airbnb. Uh, you can stay at the first original Blockbuster now that they're out of business and it's all kind of like vintage vibes in there where you can watch tapes instead of CDs. And that's really cool. And that's an immersive art experience. So, um, you know, I'm interested in what this hotel is doing in regards to that facet of contemporary art. Um, other than kind of looking at the project and watching some previews about teenage paparazzo. I don't know much about it, but, um, you know, I think it is interesting for a celebrity to talk about narcissism. I think we can also talk about the privilege and, and how Granier has access to this collector, Steve Wilson, and just through a conversation and a friendship, he's able to participate in this. And, you know, what does it mean to have access to collectors? So I, I think it could also be fair to say that maybe this topic of narcissism could be hypocritical, but I think there also is more to it. Um, and, and maybe to put our bias aside and get past the hypocrisy, Bianca, what do you think of this project and, and maybe what 21C is doing with their immersive spaces? Yeah, I think I will have a lot to say. I know we have had the idea of doing kind of an immersive art episode um, for a while. So I have a lot of, of opinions about the trend of immersive art spaces. Um, but I think as a whole, this is actually like really interesting conceptually. And I'm here for it. I'm here for a celebrity kind of breaking through into, into the art world. I don't have a problem with that. And I think that... What I like about this in particular is that he's not just kind of a collector talking about his art and putting it on a wall. I think I like that it's in a public space. I like that it's being used to have this type of, of public conversation. And I like that he's involving himself with that, especially given that, you know, the topic is about the paparazzi. I think that putting that type of of conversation out on display for a celebrity to be involved with is is super interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I like the concept about kind of stalking the stalker. I think that's I think it's clever. Um, yeah, I think it I think it is really clever. So no, I'm I'm here for it. I think again, on the other hand, I do have thoughts and opinions about immersive art experiences, both, you know, positively and negatively. Um, and this reminds but, me so much of our conversation we had about architectural digest and how we talked right. about that's what I was thinking too yeah how 
you know, we can talk about the privilege about who has access to, you know, be able to pay money to stay in the suite if it's just for one night or, or multiple nights. Um, you know, I can't speak for all of the 21C hotels, but uh, I think it's also important to point out the location of these hotels. They are predominantly in the Midwest or um, the first one was in Kentucky. And what they're doing is they're looking to bring contemporary art to the Midwest. And I think mm-hmm. also get over the stigma that it's not already here. Um, right. So I think that's already their location is providing access to these kinds of experiences that you don't find on the East and West Coast. So that's breaking a barrier. Um, but, you know, sometimes installation art is called to be viewed and experienced for long periods of time and we don't all have access and the means to do that um so that is part of the conversation and and we have talked about that before right and i also think i'm not sure exactly how this piece is set up but i think just maybe a note to end on it and something to look forward to in future conversations is the difference between installation art and an art immersion experience yeah like I think I think in our contemporary culture, like obviously there are equations where where they can be on the same playing field. But I think that for what we're discussing in things like Meow Wolf, like Meow Wolf is different than it is a piece of installation art. So mm-hmm. um yeah, I'm excited to kind of dive into that a little deeper later on. Yeah. But this is cool. This I like I'm here for it. I like it. He's he's redeemed himself. He's redeemed himself. Is he a villain? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um yeah, and I encourage you guys to also you can follow 21C because you can look at what their other specialty suites do. Uh, there was one for a while that was uh, kind of also playing into pop culture, which was super interesting when um, the chess playing Netflix show, what was that called? Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit. When that came out, there was like a chessboard on the ceiling and one of the 21C suites. There's also one where you basically it's like a recording studio. And that's really cool, too. Nice. Yeah, so something to keep an eye on. Um, But are we ready to get into today's Art Pop Talk? I think so. For today's Art Pop Talk, we are getting into the giving spirit by bringing you this festive episode, talking about all things parade. From the Panathenaic procession and Ferris Bueller's Day off to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. How are parades used in holiday celebrations and historically used to show triumph or victory? Ooh, alrighty. So I am going to bring us a little introduction into this kind of, I don't know if it's necessarily a history of parades, but this is kind of the lineage that Gianna and I felt Um, best related to kind of our contemporary example of parades and how we're kind of going to fall into that um, that use of of the topic in an art historical sense so the word parade comes uh, to the English language from French where it traces back to a middle French word meaning to prepare and in the original English language parades of course did require preparation When the English started using the word parade in the mid-1600s, it did refer to um, this kind of like French use of the word, like a very pompous show or an exhibition, like to parade something. Um, And the French have continued to use the word in that that way as reference to, again, that pompous show. And then for 
a public procession, the kind that we're going to get into, they actually use the words defile. So the use of the word um, that we are most familiar with, this kind of public procession kind, dates back to the 1600s. Um, but some of the earliest of these public processions were very like sober. They were very commemorative. They could have been political. Um, and obviously we'll get into this kind of like triumphal history as well. So by the late 1800s, the word parade was more frequently referring to the kinds of parades that we're most familiar with today, those that are very celebratory. If you aren't familiar with many ancient Roman arches, you have definitely seen their influences. So the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, the arch in Washington Square Park in New York, or the Wellington Arch in London. While some of these arches were erected by rulers or for commemorative purposes, they hearken back to Roman architecture. Of course, the technology from the arch was innovative and distinctive to the Roman Empire, and this was actually perhaps influenced by the Etruscans, which we know very little about. Um, but with the building of aqueducts, bridges, and amphitheaters like the Colosseum, we really see this arch architectural form take place. The modern term triumphal arch, what we now call it in our history, it derives from the notion that this form of architecture was connected to the award and commemoration of a triumph to particularly successful Roman generals. Um, and this actually originally took place by vote of the Roman Senate. The earliest types of arches that were set up to commemorate this triumph um, were made in the time of the Roman Republic, and these were called fornices, and they bore imagery that described and commemorated the victory. Lucius Sterentinus is known to have erected two of these fornices in roughly 196 BCE to commemorate his victories in Hispania. However, none of these structures, these fornices, have actually survived, and there's very little that is known about these type of appearances. And then we have the Roman triumphal practices that come a little bit later, and they change significantly um, at the start of the imperial period when Augustus decreed that triumphs and triumphal honors were to be confined to members of the imperial family, uh, basically meaning the emperor and his antecedents. The term fornix was then replaced by arcus, which means obviously where we get arch. While Republican fornices could be erected by a triumphator at their own discretion and expense, these imperial triumphal arches were sponsored by the decree of the Senate um, or sometimes, you know, wealthy holders of high office to honor or to promote emperors and their office and, of course, the values of the empire. So arches were not necessarily built as entrances. That's kind of an important quality of theirs. Unlike many modern triumphal arches, um, we oftentimes kind of see different gate forms or entrances to an old city. Um, that's kind of like the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. That is a type of entrance. Um, arches were not built in, in that way. Um, they were erected specifically across roads and were intended to be passed through and not around um, in, a, in a processional manner. So um, this leads to that triumphant processional or triumphant parade. By the 4th century CE, there were 36 arches in Rome, and um, a few of them have survived. So you may know the Arch of Titus, the Arch of Septimus Severus, and the Arch of Constantine. 
In thinking about these kind of celebratory victory parades, this tradition, um, you know, is definitely seen today. And I was kind of thinking about how this can be perceived as part of like a political facade um, as propaganda or equally as a celebration, depending on kind of what side of the political spectrum you're on. Particularly, you know, I was kind of thinking about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's presidential parade on Inauguration Day. But, um, you know, presently across the globe, there's no doubt that we see these type of like political powers exhibited from the tradition of this kind of like triumphal procession. And we don't necessarily have a ton more time to talk about this, but again, going or leaning more towards that celebratory sense um, and less of kind of like that political and victory sense. Um, I wanted to mention the Greek Panathenaic procession, which is depicted on the frieze of the Parthenon. And there were actually two festivals um, to mark Athena's birthday. One was every year, and then there was kind of like the grand Panathenaic festival every four years. This festival, you know, had dancing, it was followed by kind of athletic and musical and dramatic contests. And then on the last day of the festival, the Panathenaic procession um, was led by men carrying animals, which would be sacrificed to Athena. There were these women carrying kind of drinking vessels and musicians that played for women of noble birth who held the sacred peplos, which is featured across the... Uh, sculptures within the frieze you can see the peplos being carried as well so this parade followed the panathenaic way which cuts across the middle of the acropolis and then in the festival's grand finale the peplos was placed on the statue of the athena um Pelias in the erechtheion so i think the the roman arches was maybe the most natural place that we were kind of led to, but I didn't want to to ignore the kind of, again, celebratory sense of procession that we do see throughout kind of art history and, um, and our traditions as well. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know as well, peplos are the garments worn by Greek women during the like early archaic kind of classical Hellenistic period as well. Um, so just wanted to define that for you all if you didn't know. And and like why that uh, frieze is also just so important, not only like for the the tradition, also like who's in line, like who is walking when, what is the path that they're walking and like what are they wearing? It's It's really, really fascinating and um, is, is, is really important. Um, you know, Bianca, this is going to sound so wild, but the way that typically we break our episodes up and which you guys are familiar with is we kind of each take a section, whether that's historical or whether that's a pop culture aspect. Um, so with Bianca doing historical today, I really wasn't thinking about, about the arches so much. Surprisingly, I mean, we were able to go see the arch in Berlin, obviously, like super, super important. And when I was thinking of these like victory walks, especially coming in from like, you know, conquering another territory, I was thinking about those practices, but my brain totally was not thinking about arches. So I, and triumphal arches. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was thinking more of like the performative act, not like the physical marker that we have, which is like the main visual part that we have. No, totally. I think that's also really interesting is like parades in general, they kind of have this ephemeral quality where they pop up one day. And like, even as we'll get into with Macy's, like we have these like humongous, you know, markers of a parade 
but they're not long lasting. And I think that's what's, you know, interesting about kind of that lineage within art history is like, especially, you know, the, the frieze of the Parthenon, like that depicts like a very important parietal kind of like procession that we have. Um, And then those markers, I think also with the arches, we're kind of so used to them today as existing as like single standing objects. Like we're not when we, whenever we view them, we're kind of looking at them as a, a static piece of art, and and sometimes we're not always recognizing like the action that came with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm hoping also to get a little bit more into the action. I also am going to talk about more modern garments as well, just mm-hmm. a little bit in regards to like band uniforms too. And, yeah. Uh, so this was kind of a, a really interesting subject today that was. Uh, pressed upon us by boy of APT, Andrew James, actually, um, which was very helpful. And um, I'm, we are excited for next week's episode when we get into feasting. Um, but parades is a, is a really big, huge part of, of holiday culture, of small town culture, of national culture. So it really hits all these kind of tick marks. Um, but for today, I am going to start out talking about floats and a little bit of like parade iconography that comes with that. So the first reference to any vehicle resembling a parade float comes from Greece in about 500 BCE when a statue of the god of Dionysus was created from his temple in a festival car pulled by two men typically. And this procession was part of an opening ceremony for a stage drama or performance and was designed to gain favor for both the god and the drama critics. So parades continue to be an important form of celebration and often featured kings, conquerors, and any other nobles riding in this kind of um, decorated carriage. The Emperor Maximilian of Germany was one of the first to commission an artist to design a, quote, triumphal car for his parade in 1515. The cars were decorated with bells, fancy fabrics, and the carvings of flowers, fruits, and other mythical creatures. We have some parade controversy as well, which pops up in the Middle Ages. (laughs) Bianca just did a little ooh. And um, we have these floats historically known as pageant wagons, which (laughs) I think is so funny. This, this, I don't know, this idea of a pageant wagon just reminds me of um, Casey Musgraves, like, pageant album, and I, I just picture Casey Musgraves, like, running around on a In pageant, a pageant wagon. wagon, like, grab my pageant wagon, bitch, like, I'm ready to go. I would ride around in a pageant wagon. Like, get in, bitch, we're going to York, like. <laughs> um... So we have this drama, this controversy, because there aren't actually a lot of detailed descriptions of these English pageant wagons or the particulars of the staging um, that these traveling you know, plays would commence. Um, and so this kind of drama performance or this, you know, acting performance was their primary use. So historians kind of go back and forth on their methodology and their appearance. However, these transportable, like, performance wagon things um, were also called, quote, cycle or mystery plays, being processional in nature, traveling from about 1375 to the mid-16th century in such cities as York um, or Chester as part of the Corpus Christi Festival. And no, I do not mean Texas, but it was also common in Spain, Belgium, and the Netherlands. 
In the United States, parades and parade floats were an important part of American lifestyle starting in the early 1800s. We have a female designer that comes along making a significant change in American parade float designs, and this was Isabella Coleman. She really set an example of what the possibilities of a float can look like and how we can kind of take it to the extreme, and that's really contributed to her work, especially when it comes to the Rose Parade in Pasadena, California. In 1910, she won second prize for her float design with individual flower petals being glued to the float. Then later, she pioneered the system in which we place you know, a stem of the flower in a really kind of teeny tiny vial to prolong their lifespan. As float designs became more sophisticated, Coleman wanted a method for the floats to seem like they're moving through air. This required developing a system that hid the carriage of the float from from view, essentially. And this came about the steel carriage welded to a truck frame. Within this frame, there was also a hidden cockpit for the driver as well. And she chose small diameters. Um, She chose airplane wheels for the unit as well, um, as they're kind of made, or as they kind of made the float to appear to hover just above the ground. So Bianca is going to kind of walk us through the commercialism that has appeared, particularly in American culture, uh, with the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, when we get into the Thanksgiving of it all. But Coleman was actually the first to pitch the idea that floats could have corporate sponsors, which I thought was really interesting. And she actually went on to build Rose Parade floats for the next 59 years. And her success created a small industry of professional parade float designers, and she had her own business where she just specifically did this. Today, most major floats are designed and constructed by professional builders. Each float costs between, you know, $30,000 to $200,000 or more, and uh, it takes about a year to create. The floats are built in large warehouses using a wide variety of materials and construction techniques today. So there's a lot to cover. We could get into the specificities of how a float is designed and what that entails, but it has just become such a broad thing cross-culturally that I think you guys kind of get the gist of that. But I wanted to shift from flow iconography and move onto other key aspects of parades from hometowns to large events, um, which really kind of revolves around the idea of the marching band. Um, So the earliest military marching band that historians have documented were from the Ottoman Empire in the 13th century. The Ottomans conquered vast swaths of territory in northern Africa, the Middle East, and southern Europe, and brought their marching band tradition with them. The history of marching band uniforms begins with the inclusion of musicians in medieval armies. During the Middle Ages, groups of marching musicians joined their army where their music was used to direct troops on the battlefield and to maintain morale. Like the soldiers in these armies, musicians wore plumes from local birds, specific colors, and distinct motive to show their loyalty to, you know, the lord, their lord, whoever, their army. Um, However, full uniforms at this point were uncommon. 
In the 1700s, military marching bands appeared in revolutionary era America in the form of fife and drum corps. National armies were also the first to issue completely regulated uniforms for both soldiers and musicians. Thanks in large part to composer and conductor John Philip Sousa, marching band music expanded in terms of repertoire towards the end of the 1800s, credited for writing the Marine Corps official song as well. When jumping to 1907, we have our first halftime show for a football game. So this combination of military conquering political history then also gets transformed into sports and competition, uh, which is pretty synonymous with other kind of visual sports history we have talked about on the podcast before, in particular with the Nika riots. Uh, so marching and music clearly have this history and it lends itself really well to parades in terms of celebration and spirit and camaraderie. Um, I think the visual effects that come with the idea of the float and also the uniform kind of go hand in hand. There's something very like garish about it, um, something very specific about it. Um, There's also something kind of wholesome and familiar about a band that we can equate to the holidays or small towns. Um, I think we all get really excited or those of us who still watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, um, you know, when you see a band from your hometown or from a drum corps that you maybe have participated in in the past, like it's really cute and it's exciting. And, um, you know, we're we're familiar with that. Um, and I can't help but equate it to something like homecoming, especially, you know, being from OSU, whatever, like we pride ourselves on, you know, having like the biggest kind of homecoming in the US and it's a big deal and people get really involved in it and Stillwater's population like quadruples in October and it's super intense. Um, I think when I think about something like sports and homecomings, it's something that, uh, you know, is part of our culture, so it's hard to ignore, but it's also something that I don't particularly participate in now as an adult, but Bianca and I were both in band, like we know what it's like to put on a band uniform. And um, there's also something specific about, you know, about the way that that music is played and uh, what environment you are listening to that music into. It sounds very different and specific than listening to like other forms of um, ensembles. Yeah, I really love that we're kind of talking about um, a locale and um, and small town parade affairs. I think that homecoming is one that is so distinctive um, to each town and you know to kind of each school that you you may have you know participated in or go to or or just a place that you live in. I think, you know, Gianna and I, we were in quite a few parades. Um, When we were in high school, we always had to do the 4th of July parade. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we were there for color guard and band and things like that. And I I don't know there again, you you hit the nail on the head. Just there is something so kind of distinctive about your local homecoming parade or, or, you know, your local 4th of July parade, your local Thanksgiving, Christmas Day parade, Halloween parade. It's kind of funny to to describe it as wholesome when also this kind of processional culture is like derived from warfare as well, uh, which is kind of interesting. And also just uh, celebrating like religion and also other culture. So it's it's kind of weird that it's all kind of spun off in these these different ways and we all kind of have our own different 
memory or relationship with parades. Um, and I think it, it does go back to that idea of kind of a facade as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that there's something about that apple pie aesthetic that a parade might bring to a community that kind of covers up a lot of, you know, negative things about a community, about a high school, about a kind of collegiate experience. Like, you know, whenever you participate in something like homecoming, you are supposed to take pride in that institution or that town that you live in. And there are a lot of times where I did not feel any pride towards OSU and I didn't want to participate in homecoming because I was kind of ashamed to be affiliated with that institution. And I didn't like that, um, you know, that, you know, rape culture took place in Greek life and I didn't want to support their floats. So I mm-hmm. think there's also that kind of facade aspect that a parade covers up in its celebratory kind of, um, I don't know, the imposing of a celebratory experience. Yeah. And I think also in, in just like bringing it back to like small town vibes too, even when I was in high school, I've just never been a raw, raw kind of gal. I've just never been a person who's had a lot of like school spirit or like team spirit. And so participating in these kind of things, like I can get on board with a holiday parade uh but when it comes to like the institutional connection or the team Mm -hmm. connection um it's just not for me I suppose and even being in band I've just never been a super like competitive person and I just didn't understand what the big deal was right right yeah so kind of moving on a little bit more into parades with other pop culture spaces. I just kind of thought it would be fun to ask you, Bianca, and just have a candid conversation about what stands out to you parade and pop culture-wise. Is there anything else that you think of that has significance, like outside of homecoming, outside of just band? I don't know. I'm sure that there's a lot I can think of you have a lot listed here, so I don't want to say any of the ones that you have um, that you have listed. I'll say that one of them maybe that I was thinking about um, that I told you about was Disney World. And I really didn't know this until I actually went that whenever you go, Disney has a you know parade every single day. Whenever we were planning the trip, I was like, okay, like, you know, my friend really wants to go to the parade. Like I was kind of skeptical about it. I'm not sure why, but I just thought parade like, sounded kind of hokey but it was like the coolest part of the day like this disney world parade was so cool and i'm so glad we went and all the characters were so cute and the floats were so cool and i don't know it was so fun but at first i was like a parade i was like why (laughs) but it it was awesome yeah I, i really liked that so um maybe i'll let you talk about some of the other examples that you have but that's definitely one that i was at first you know i didn't even know it was a thing but you know, they showed me. It was great. Yeah. And I feel like the Disney adults in particular have like a super like hardcore ownership over the Disney parades as well. Um, Disneyland opened in 1955 and, and they've had a parade ever since um, at the park. So it is a super big part of Disney culture, that theme park culture. So we also have the iconic Ferris Bueller's Day Off with the Steuben Parade which is part of the annual three-day German-American festival. 
now on its like 100th year anniversary, I believe. Von Steuben Day is, again, a German-American holiday honoring Baron Frederick von Steuben. Von Steuben was a Prussian general who lent his aid to George Washington during the Revolutionary War, training American troops to help them defeat the British. And Chicago's parade is one of three Steuben parades held across the U.S., and it really gained a lot of national attention after this iconic film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, in 1986. Another one that I was thinking about, which, you know, the goths and the emos get triggered by the first note of the song, which I do as well, but My Chemical Romance, A Welcome to the Black Parade. The Black Parade is a rock opera centering around the character of the patient. It is about his passage out of life and the memories he has of it. So the patient dies and death welcomes him in the form of a parade. Another uh, kind of musical performance too, I was thinking about Beyonce Homecoming, even though maybe that wasn't attributed to so much of the parade aspect, the performative aspect of that album. Um, Homecoming was super iconic as well. So I feel like you can't ignore that. Um, And then we have carnivals, which are tied to the celebration before fasting. And I thought this was also a good tie into our episode for next week when we talk about feasting. So we have Carnival in Rio de Janeiro, and that's a festival held every year before Lent. And it's considered the biggest carnival in the world with 2 million people per day on the streets. And the first Carnival Festival in Rio occurred in 1723, so it has a super long history. And then we also have Mardi Gras, which is a big one, also known as Fat Tuesday, also taking place in a variety of different cultures and a variety of different countries. And this is also taking place and culminating before Ash Wednesday, also equating to uh, to fasting just in... Um, kind of a different religion, but same concept. Um, So yeah, so those were kind of some of my bigger ones. We have some pop culture, carnival, or parading events that are really big. And then of course, the musicality of it all. And then, you know, some of those like pop culture movie moments. All right, everyone. So with that, I think it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. everybody now we are going to talk about the big one the macy's thanksgiving day parade so gianna do you want to talk a little bit about kind of like your earliest memories of the parade or what you associate the parade with today for me as we just kind of talked about like we are a family that can only be ready for christmas at a certain time like when it's fall, like it is fall, I would like it to be fall. I don't want it to be Christmas Christmas yet. So for us, the marker of the Christmas season is when Santa comes out at the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And I think that is also 
definitely attributed to mom. Like the way that I think about it is because of mom, uh, for sure. Like when Santa comes out, like fine, we can start going to the Christmas tree farm, thinking about Christmas, pulling out the decorations. But until I see freaking Santa, it's not time yet. So, um, it really, Thanksgiving is this good kind of transition holiday. And I suppose maybe that's how I view it. Yeah, I think that we've always really enjoyed Thanksgiving. Um, and I, I do equate the same thing. It's like I, I can hear mom, you know, being like, all right, let's put the Christmas music on, you know, as soon as Santa crosses the finish. And, you know, we're all kind of sitting around the living room, like clapping, you know, for Santa. And yeah, I just it is such a marker in our household that the holiday season really is upon us and um it just for us it really kick-started like the rest of our family traditions like we could put the decorations up we could go pick out the tree you know like something about santa on our screen just really means something to us and it's like i can't deal with this like oh you know freaking mariah carey on the morning after halloween announcing it's it's a holiday season it's just it's it's Obviously, you know, people can sell it. There's something wrong with, with celebrating a little earlier, things like that. But I think it's just for us. I don't know. That's kind of our family tradition, I suppose. So we're, we're big Macy's parade people over here. I, I can almost like smell, you know, dad cooking breakfast. Like, of course, we had to have like a big breakfast yeah. before we had like Thanksgiving dinner too. So I can like smell, you know, like potatoes and pancakes, like being made while you know we watch the parade there's such a kind of like sensory experience as well for us um at least where we're watching the parade and kind of like meal prepping for the day um and it, it is that kind of like immersive i don't know tradition yeah I suppose. and then i can put on a christmas movie and then i'm like okay no wait like i'm in the mood for this now yes yeah totally yeah totally <laughs> So I want to talk about the parade's history a little bit. Macy's first staged this parade in 1924, but it was originally called the Macy's Christmas Parade. It followed the route between 145th Street and Convent Avenue to the Macy's store at 34th Street and Broadway. Three floats that were originally pulled by horses uh, took place in the parade. There were four bands and zoo animals from the Central Park Zoo. They had camels, donkeys, elephants, and goats. Um, and these these were features of the parade. Santa Claus was last in the lineup, which is obviously a tradition that still continues to this day, um, which at the time unveiled Macy's Christmas window display as well. Three years after its inception, the Christmas parade was renamed the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Macy's didn't invent this practice. Obviously, Philadelphia actually had the oldest Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's Gimbel's Thanksgiving Day Parade, um, which is now the ABC Dunkin' Donuts Thanksgiving Day Parade, actually debuted in 1920. So obviously starting in 1924, the parade was kind of centered um, in this phase of the Roaring Twenties, which was obviously a time of prosperity in the U.S., um, which gave the parade this tie back to consumer culture, which, you know, of course we love to see here in the U.S. and we'll talk about here in a minute. In 1927, the giant balloons that we know today had replaced the live zoo animals. 
At the conclusion of the parade, these giant balloons were originally released into the air, and Gianna and I are looking at a, p- a picture of the balloons right now, and like, honestly, this fish balloon is terrifying. If I was a kid, I would not want to go to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day I Parade. I do not like it. I also, have I told you guys that I just don't trust fish? Like, I don't <laughs> like breathe them. underwater. <laughs> it's weird. I don't. I don't like it. So why does it have teeth? This is like the scariest fish I've ever seen. Truly. Um, There's also like a funky looking like horse in the background. I just like, honestly, these balloons have come such a long way. They're really low to the ground also. I mean, I think their scale has something to do with that as well. Like now they are just like enormous balloons and you know you're always like here an al roker talk about like how many gallons of you know whatever air is in that's this thing. so funny that that is such a part of the commentary like this balloon took this many people to make it has this many gallons of oxygen in it and it has this many people <laughs> holding yeah. it up <laughs> right i know i know um so, again, these balloons were originally, like, released just straight into the air. Um, and I think this um, this had to do with the helium as well that was in them. So <laughs> in the oxygen. Is that what you yeah. <laughs> Well, I was reading something about, like, in particular, like, the helium allowed for the... I'm not sure what they used, to, if, if it's helium that they use today for the entire massive balloon. I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a chemist. We're not gas experts <laughs> here. I don't fucking know. <laughs> So in 1928, Macy's actually began offering $100 rewards for any of the balloons that could be returned. Like, I don't know why they wanted to return them after they just, like, released them into the air, but whatever. So why are they releasing them? I just... I don't don't know. know. On the balloon, they actually had return addresses, like, labeled on the balloon, so people could turn them in. And then in 1931, there was a pilot, Colonel Clarence E. Chamberlain, who snagged a balloon using an airplane. And then um, this led to a ban on retrieval by airplanes the following year. So then after that, after the ban... In 1932, another pilot attempted to capture a balloon, um, and it nearly crashed, actually. So then Macy's discontinued releasing the balloons at the end of the parade. I guess it was, like, maybe a spectacle for the city, like, underdog gets away, you know, type of thing. So in 1934, we begin to see the involvement of celebrities in the parade, actually, with singer and actor Eddie Cantor joining the event. So from... 1942 to 1944, the parade was canceled because of the shortage of helium and rubber during World War II. So I thought that was interesting. It's not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily canceled out of morale, but um, out of kind of supply shortage. And those are the only years that um, the celebration had been canceled. When the parade returned in 1946, it would it was broadcast on television for the first time, um, and it had previously been broadcast via radio, so you could kind of listen to the commentary over the radio as well before that. This year, we will be celebrating the 95th anniversary of the parade on Thanksgiving Day. So to wrap things up for this episode, Gianna, I just wanted to talk with you about what the Thanksgiving Day Parade kind of means for our consumer culture these days. And I think, um, you know, again, how it used to be the the Christmas Day Parade for Macy's, at least. I, I wonder 
what that meant for Gimbals in Philadelphia, who was originally doing the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Like, this is just such an intense marketing strategy, I feel, for me. And I feel like now, you know, I hate this idea of, like, early Black Friday. Like, it's not early Black Friday. You're just, it's just shopping on Thanksgiving or whatever. But I think that, like, our consumer culture is jump-started by the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade as well. And honestly, like, there are sponsorships. The McDonald's balloons or the, you know, different kind of, like, floats with celebrities kind of sponsoring their own thing or, you know, a new Christmas album or something like that. So there is something to be said about the marketing uh, behind the parade, even though we kind of continue to love it. So I was wondering or wanting to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it does jumpstart the consumer culture of the holiday season. I think that's a huge part of it. But that's also part of the reason why I think I have this strict date about when I want to participate in things because I don't want to be a part of that. Like we constantly have to buy, buy, buy like so early and we have to like prep for it this early. I'm very aware of that. And um, Black Friday really isn't something that I participate in that much anymore. I do some like Mm -hmm. Cyber Monday stuff. Um, I think maybe we went the Thanksgiving before you moved the last Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving I spent with you, like what, like two and a half years ago or something. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, but I think especially with the balloons is where we get a lot of our consumer culture. I think with the floats, you get more like celebrity promotion. Um, but also like there's something wholesome about it. Like, I don't want the Sesame Street float to go away, even though it's promoting Sesame Street. You know what I mean? It is part of our pop culture that releasing your next Christmas album or, like, the Rockettes, any of that, I don't want that to go away. But, like, the Tony the Tiger, like, ooh, big float, I don't necessarily (laughs) need. And that's, for me, I guess, why... um, Or, sorry, balloon. I've never been a big like balloon kind of gal because I feel like it's more just like commercializing super like these super big uh um corporations corporations are also their like caricatures like Tony the Tiger or like the bee from like Honey Nut Cheerios oh yeah (laughs) that's always funny to me um and even Ronald McDonald I know there's like the Ronald McDonald house Mm -hmm. and I'm like okay like whatever I can make my peace with the big clown but I just that has never been like a super kind of like fun part for me is the balloons. Yeah. And it's also going back to like the commentary of the anchors. Like it's just so odd that the anchors have to like put on this facade about like, here comes Tony the Tiger. Like Frosted Flakes are a delicious part of a nutrition or whatever. It's just like, honey, it's sure is going to give you cancer, folks. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like we put chemicals in our oats, you know? Yeah. Like, like you like Roundup? Yeah, it's weird that um, that the floats are described, like, on a technical level, but also, like, behind that, there's this, like, sponsorship that the anchors have to, like, play along with, especially for kids watching the parade, you know? It's, like, all cheery and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, if you're just getting commercial, I think one of my favorite parts about the about the parade are, you know, definitely celebrity appearances you know and so- the Broadway Yes. Uh, Broadway little shows. But that's so funny because with the, um, you know, we talked about how you could listen to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on the radio, but now that it's broadcasted, we can have these different 
performances. And I think obviously it is in New York too. So it's a celebration of that city life too and that city culture mm-hmm. and the arts there. And so, yeah, I think I really like you know, the Rockettes and the little Broadway performances too, Mm -hmm. which will honestly be really nice to see hopefully this year with now that Broadway is back up and running. I think that'll be such a... I know Moulin Rouge will be there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'm like, I I think that is some like nice, wholesome like cheer that like we all need. We need. Um, I will say the funniest thing to me about the parades is how the singers like lip sing and it's yes. this thing that we all just accept. We just accept. There's something about the like microphones that they hold for the parades. They're like really big, and they have their little like um, like we have them on our mics now. These little like foam caps on them, but they're really like floofy, and they always have their like gloves on, and they're in their yes. red coat, like their winter aesthetic. And like, so, like with this like, massive glove and this massive <laughs> microphone that doesn't do anything, it just is so funny. It is really funny. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. I wonder if that's always been a thing—the lip syncing aspect, or if it's. I don't know, because like I remember when I came to that realization that they were lip syncing, it blew my mind. I was like, "What the heck?" I was like, "I was offended." I was like, "So when upset you when I finally it, found that out." I mean, how would that work? I'm not saying that hypothetically, like there wouldn't be a way to like hook up each float with its own sound system, but to broadcast that and to make it audible for people actually physically there. Yeah, I mean, it seems plus like you a can't lot. control the like temperature, the wind. I don't know what that looks like with. I think there's you know, also so there's so many electronical components to floats these days. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of like the fire hazard of it all. But yeah, I don't know. I think also at the same time, the lip singing is a part of this kind of cheeky nature mm-hmm. to the parade. And I think that's why we just accept it. But it would be extremely difficult. We're asking for a lot from these people. You know what I mean? We are. We are. And I'm sure that it's like not great to like put out your best vocals in sometimes like the freezing cold or you know yeah that can't be like the best thing whatever so. you well um i feel like we done did it um does this I think so get us in the holiday spirit a little bit is apt you know, your new marker of the holiday season <laughs> oh you know i'm getting really excited for thanksgiving now i really want some pigs in a blanket so you know you can make them anytime you want i know but they're like a thanksgiving <laughs> Um, well, let us know your hot takes on some pigs in a blanket. Uh, you know, drop it in our... What other weird food do you put on your table for Thanksgiving? That's what I want to know. Okay, we'll do a little poll. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that could be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. So everyone, for next week, we are going to keep up with the holiday spirit. Like I said earlier, we will be talking about feasting. Um, so good idea with the food poll there. That'll get us in a good mood for next week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, make sure that you're keeping up with us on social platforms and sign up for our newsletter if you haven't done so already, because we like to lay out the month's episode for you guys as well. Um, if you have any thoughts or notions, you can email us at our poptalk at gmail.com and with that we will talk to you all next tuesday bye everyone bye art pop talks executive producers are me bianca martucci fink and me gianna martucci fink music and sounds are by josh turner and photography is by adrian turner and our graphic designer is sid hammond <laughs>